You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tanya Ramos, and I'm one of the clinical nurse educators in the Royal Children's Hospital Education Outreach Program. Joining me today is Beck Marshall, clinical support nurse for our day surgical and short stay units. Beck has also been part of the Safer Care Victoria looking at standardising care for children undergoing tonsil adenoidectomy. Welcome, Beck. It's wonderful we actually finally get to do this. Uh, we often get lots of inquiries through our outreach program as to how we manage um, children having tonsil adenoidectomies. Thanks, Tan. It's great to be here. So I guess I want to start off first of all by asking you, can you explain why children are referred to have their tonsils and adenoids removed? Sure. There are two main reasons that children have their tonsils and adenoids removed. First one being infection and also obstruction. Infections are normally recurrent tonsillitis or a quincy, which is a peritonsillar abscess. And quincies are pretty painful. I've looked yeah. after a few kids who've had um, their quincy, like a, a quincy and required sort of quite urgent surgery. Yeah, correct. Because um, they might need to have that quincy or the tonsillar abscess drained. And that can be really painful because you can imagine every time you swallow, every time you eat, um, it's quite quite painful. Yeah. Yeah. And you said, you mentioned obstruction. Yes. So um, we're going to talk about obstruction when it's normally the younger population that get referred for having their tonsils removed. Um, so about the ages of three to five. So you can have severe snoring and sleep apnea, but snoring doesn't necessarily mean that they have sleep apnea. There's about 15% of kids that do snore, but only about 5% of those children have true sleep apnea. Um, right. So sleep apnea is where you might snore and then you have a period of stop breathing. So that's the apnea spell mm -hmm. and it um, can happen multiple times throughout the night um, and depending on the severity. So if they have mild obstructive sleep apnea or mild OSA, yep. they might not need any treatment or just a, um, some nasal uh, sprays to open up their airways. But if it's moderate to severe and it's affecting other um, things like their mood, behaviours at school, learning, um, if they have any learning difficulties, then they might require a tonsils plus or minus adenoids. Yeah, and we often see children referred just before they start school to sort of prevent that um, issue from occurring and their learning to sort of be optimised. Yeah, correct. So patients with um, OSA, they're getting a really restless sleep. So they're not getting that really good deep sleep that they require to yep. um, enable them to have a really productive day, whether it be learning, playing. Um, so yeah, their sleep's disrupted. They're constantly half asleep, half awake, and they just they just can't concentrate through the day. So it's really good that these children are able to have their tonsils and adenoids removed before attending school um, to prevent further issues down the track. And what's the youngest do you think that we've seen here at RCH that require that kind of surgery, the T's and A's removed? Um, look, we've probably seen patients about 18 months um, and in that age group, we do keep those children um, uh, probably over two nights just to make sure that they are um, well looked after and their recovery is um, to high standard. Yep. So it's uneventful. Yeah. Excellent. And you mentioned, I want to explore with you a little bit more um, in regards to obstructive sleep apnea. Would these children have an increased risk of experiencing obstruction postoperatively considering sort of they've just had a general anaesthetic and potentially they've had intraoperative opiates? Yeah. So um, any children um, having a GA has potential of having um, apneas after the surgery, yep. especially if they've had opioids. So 
So children, particularly under the age of two, have already have a relatively small airway in general. And also the patients with OSA have a heightened sus- susceptibility to the respiratory depressant effects of um, anaesthetic agents and opioid use. Yeah, that's so true. And these children that are having their tonsils removed also have uh, increased swelling of the tongue and their soft palate can um, also cause breathing problems, especially in those first few hours post the procedure. They have an increased upper airway collapsibility um, and restriction. Wow. So these kids sort of really require that sort of intensive kind of care, I guess, in the recovery room in that immediate post-op care time. Interestingly, studies have shown that the highest level of respiratory support a patient will require is actually in the first two hours of their recovery. So this can be a really good predictive factor of what the patient's recovery going to the ward will be like. So if they have jaw support, PEEP and oxygen in recovery, then it's most likely going to, the patient is most likely going to require similar support um, and care postoperatively on the ward. Yeah. So you've got to be quite vigilant and I guess it's really important then to get a good handover from the recovery nurse as to what has occurred in the recovery, what support they did have, whether they had enough pain relief, what kind of airway management techniques they used. Yeah, absolutely. And that can really help find out about ward placement of these patients. Yeah, definitely. What would be a typical kind of pain management regime for a patient who has had their tonsils and adenoids removed? Worldwide, Panadol is um, used and also some non-steroidals. What kind of non-steroidals would we use here at RCH? So RCH specifically use celecoxib. So it's a non-steroidal, which is um, a twice daily dosing. And we've used that recently because it actually reduces the parental burden of parents giving medications. Tonsils are really painful, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but giving medication can be really tricky. So celecoxib is once in the morning and once in the evening, and that just reduces the amount of times you have to give a patient, or sorry, the child, pain relief. And I can imagine obviously being such a painful procedure as you sort of explained that being quite strict with pain management is really important. Hugely. And I think this um, comes back to um, patient education and we'll also touch on this later. Um, But it is so important that we make sure that these patients have strictly um, six hourly Panadol four times a day, up to a week, if not longer, Mm -hmm. um, so that the pain does not get too unmanageable, that they're not going to eat and drink, potentially become dehydrated, which can increase the risk of bleeding as well. Right. And in terms of other medications, so you've talked about Panadol and non-steroidals. How about when the analgesia, the sort of that simple stuff, isn't sufficient? Yeah. So we definitely recommend some breakthrough pain relief. So um, hospitals use Endone and Tramadol. Um, There are pros and cons with using any analgesia. It really comes down to the hospital and the doctor's preference. And them really knowing their patients and the individual's comorbidities and contraindications. So knowing the patient's um, severity of their OSA and if they are high-risk patient for any other uh, medications. So, for example, tramadol, you can't have it with epileptic patients. It's just vital to know all the contributing factors and know the patient really well. Yeah, and we sort of touched on this uh, just a little bit earlier in regards as to, you know, tonsillectomies being so painful. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about when the pain peaks typically for children when they've left at home and what kind of um, education would give obviously the parents then? Yeah, absolutely. So um, day three to seven or four to eight is the peak. And the reason is when the tonsils are removed, what is left is a bare 
um, open wound. It's quite um, raw, isn't it? Yeah, it's raw. So there's no other surgery that, you know, they remove something and just leave it open, exposed. Yeah. So you think of a um, orthopedic surgeon, they will close up the wound, they'll dress it, dress the wound and let that area rest. We can't do that with the tonsils. Yeah. Um, you can't put a dressing on it. You can't rest it. You need to eat. You need to drink. You need to speak. You need to swallow your saliva. And all that will be increasing a little bit of discomfort seeing that it'll, you know, it's quite raw in there still. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so day three to seven, studies have shown that this is the highest time of um, new vessels and new nerve formation. So that's why it's so painful. Can you explain to us a little bit about what kind of nerves and things are in that tonsillar bed? Um, so at the back of the um, throat, there's a plexus of nerves. So not one nerve can actually be injected and, and blocked. So that, again, is why it's so hard to really make that area comfortable for the patient. Yeah, yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about the work that you actually undertook with Safer Care? In 2019, we worked with five other hospitals, so Royal Children's, the Northern Hospital, Epworth, Richmond, Aubrey, Wodonga Health and Monash Children's Hospital in Casey to develop, adapt and test resources to support clinicians and families of children needing their tonsils and adenoids removed. So basically to standardise kind of the care. Victoria alone performs over 12,000 T's and A's procedures each year. Wow, that's a huge number, 12,000. And readmissions to hospital after T's and A's is the most common reason for readmissions after a surgical procedure for a child. Victoria really saw this as a high priority to fix this. You've explained to us, Bec, that, you know, representation is a problem, especially for children undergoing a tonsil adenoidectomy, and that's something that Safer Care identified. Can you tell me, you know, what's the percentage of readmissions? So in Victoria, around 10% of hospitals have readmission rates higher than expected for these surgeries. So hence why Victoria government has recognised this as a really high priority for improvement. And, you know, prior to obviously us recording the podcast, you actually gave me a really interesting fact about reasons, I guess, that apart from pain, children are readmitted. Can you run through those for me again? I know that bleeding was one. Um, So, yeah, bleeding, persistent uncontrolled pain, which we just spoke about, and that decrease in refusal of eating and drinking. So I suppose it's a bit of a catch-22. The pain's really bad, therefore they won't eat and drink. They can become dehydrated and therefore increases the risk of um, bleeding. Yeah, it's like the wheel that just sort of keeps (laughs) on turning. The work that you undertook with Safer Care looked at standardising pain relief, but also what kind of other work did you do in regards to that area in the management of tonsil adenoidectomy? So we focused on pre and post-operative information. Pre is really important so that the families had a bit of a guideline as to what to expect from the surgery Yeah. Um, so that they had an understanding that this could be a really painful procedure. Um, and also for those older children, explaining that to the children that it, it will be painful so it's not so, so much of a shock. Yeah, because recovery isn't like two or three days. No, it's actually it's over a couple weeks. of weeks. Correct. Yeah, two weeks. They had an expectation of what to expect. And also post-operative information, what we did was we looked at what the hospitals currently did and what information they provided, and we tried to standardise that care. What we thought was important to inform the parents. Also, we looked at a pain management guidance For a family who don't have comorbidities um, and other health-related issues, giving medication can be really stressful, especially when the child is in so much pain. So we developed a, um, I suppose, a table um, where families could write down the medication when they last gave it and kind of like like a medication chart, I suppose. 
Um, and also the follow-up support. So we looked at um, providing phone calls to right. the families after to see how they're doing. Is there anything that we could help to support them? And we developed a script that hospitals can use to um, follow up with their patients. And if clinicians listening to us today wanted to access that information, is there a website or um, somewhere that they can go to have a look at all the resources? Yeah, so the Safer Care Victoria um, website has um, a section called the Reducing Readmissions After Paediatric Tonsillectomy and Adenoidectomy. And they have an implementation package, which is fantastic. So it has all the scripts, such as the phone call that I just spoke about, has the pain management guidance, it has pre and post operative um, information. It also goes through PDSA cycles, talking about early adopters, late adopters and um, people who, key stakeholders and how to engage them in this project. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing work. What are some key points and in instructions in your experience that we let families know when they're discharged? So what are some of the key messages you give families? Yeah. So I think one of the most key, um, important key factor is that pain will get worse before it gets better. And right. it's important to be really realistic because when that peak happens, it can be really quite hard to manage. And I think if we let them know, they're like, no, this is part of the journey. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing going wrong yeah. um, that this is just... We were told that this to expect this, but, and also be strict and on top of things. So make use of the medication chart that the Safer Care Victoria um, website can provide for families because pain is really hard to manage and bring it back down to a more manageable level if you don't keep on top of things. So right. even though the patient, the child says, no, I'm not sore, keep on top of it for the next seven days because you don't want that catch 22 of pain gets sore, can't eat and drink increased risk of bleeding. Yeah. And then they get dehydrated and Absolutely. they're miserable and grumpy. Yeah. Um, and we've talked sort of a fair bit about um, the pharmacological kind of interventions because they're really important. We want to make sure that we keep, you know, pain management really regular as you, as you explained for all those reasons. But can you tell us about sort of the non-pharmacological things that um, as nurses or clinicians, we can inform our families, um, you know, simple things that they can do at home to maybe help ease pain or distract the child? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so rest, number one, absolutely. And eating cool um, foods and drinks can be really soothing for the throat, um, especially if you're having difficulty swallowing, but also making sure that they're not just eating, um, drinking like water. You need to have some things that have some kilojoules in it so they can keep their energy up, particularly if they're not eating much. So smoothies, milkshakes, cordials are all fantastic. Now, when I was a baby nurse, um, <laughs> someone told me, you know, don't give red jelly because if they vomit that up, that's going to look like blood. Yeah. <laughs> Is that something that you would say? Um, as a baby nurse myself, that was definitely um, one thing that I got told to. But I think as nurses, you you should know what's old blood and what's Correct. jelly. You should know. Yeah. Um, and what sort of other things, um, you know, you've talked about, you know, um, rest, cold fluids, icy poles, um, what, you know, what are some other things that, that can assist? Yep. So distraction. So what's the favorite, um, what's the child's favorite book, movie, music, video games, anything to distract them from thinking about their sore, sore throat. And for older children, relaxation and meditation can be really good. Um, and these should be discussed prior to the surgery, not when the pain is at its worst. Yeah, um, that's because, right. They're yeah, not going to be taking no, anything when the pain's at its no, peak. That's all they're going to focus at. So if that is something that your child already does, then yeah, absolutely utilize those skills. And also giving children choices and control over the situation that yes, they want the pink ice cream, not the um, chocolate ice cream. Yeah. 
fair enough. Just trying to please them as much as you possibly can <laughs> for the next two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are your take home messages today? Don't be afraid to give analgesia. Children have a better outcome when their pain is managed. Like I said, they're going to keep hydrated. They're going to be able to swallow their pain relief and then reduce the risk of bleeding. Parental education is so, so important. So whether that, that be in um, pre-op in the clinic that they see the surgeon um, beforehand, intra-op and post-op, I, I just cannot emphasise the importance of the parental education because if you have them on board um, and they know what to expect, then it's going to be an easier ride for the patient, the parent and the nurse. Yeah, that's so true. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, as you said, it, it can, it's such a painful procedure. You want them to be on top of this. Yeah. You want to provide the reassurance that it's safe to give them these medications because, you know, giving children, you know, for a week Panadol and Nurofen yep. and maybe Endone or Tramadol can be quite confronting to someone that is otherwise fit and healthy and has Correct. never taken medication in their life. Yeah. And I think um, really explain to them that all these medications are really safe is just so important. Yeah. And you mentioned previously about the Safer Care Victoria resources. So give them a, another little plug. Yeah, so Safer Care Victoria, their website is absolutely fantastic. So um, if you're a clinician in another hospital um, and don't know how to reduce the readmission rates, um, absolutely have a look at the Safer Care Victoria um, website and the implementation package on reducing readmissions after paediatric tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. They had a massive uh, success with this package. So data collected from the participating hospitals on readmission rates exceeded the aim of a 15% reduction in oh, readmission wow. rates. That's incredible. Yeah. In January 2020, the change in median was down to 0% for, from 4.2. So evidence has definitely proven that these changes can make a big difference in readmission rates. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today because we've learned so much. I, I know I definitely have. And yeah, that that point that you you know said about informing families, having them on, on your side, educating them, just so important. It just really, you can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. Thank you, Tan. I really appreciate you having me on today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat. 